When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very honored to introduce to you my special guest and personal friend this week, Dr. Lisa Larkin. Lisa, welcome to A Current Life. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate being here. Well, I appreciate your making the time to join us today, and like I often do, I want to take a little time to give our listeners a proper introduction to you. Dr. Lisa Larkin has been practicing internal medicine in Cincinnati since 1991. After 11 years of teaching and practicing at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, she made the choice to shift her focus from teaching to high-quality patient care. In July 2002, Dr. Larkin opened her own practice, guided by the philosophy that she could, do, she could better serve her patients' medical needs in a smaller, more personal practice and in an environment over which she had more control. And in 2001, she completed an advanced credential course in menopause and menopause management and is now a certified menopause clinician through the North American Menopause Society. In 2012, Dr. Larkin was named the medical director of the new University of Cincinnati Health Women's Health Center in Cincinnati. In addition, she was named associate professor and division director, Midlife Women's Health University of Cincinnati Health Department of OBGYN. She has received numerous academic achievement awards and service awards for her outstanding dedication to her patients, consistently recognized as one of Cincinnati's best physicians, Dr. Larkin was featured on the cover of Cincinnati Magazine's Top Doctors issue in November 2002. She is active in the American College of Physicians and the North American Menopause Society. Well, that's an impressive array of, uh, of academic and, and uh, credentials. And like I often do, I want to start with your early years and kind of ask you, what got you going into the medical field? Well, I mean, I think... Like with most people, it really comes down to early role models and mentorship along the way. And I guess for me, you know, those early role models were clearly my parents. Both of them were in the healthcare field. My mother was a nurse. My father was a physician. He was actually a psychiatrist. And so from early years, I was really exposed to healthcare and patients. And my mother in particular from really early years, childhood, I can remember being five or six or seven, um, she would certainly take me to work with her, and particularly at the holiday time, my mother was always doing things for the patients uh, where she was working, uh, playing the piano, bringing cookies, bringing my sister and I around to kind of see the patients and kind of interact with them. So certainly I think that was um, my first foray into kind of exposure to health care, but certainly it wasn't um, in my early years that I made the decision to go to medical school at all. I 
I didn't decide that until I was well into college. So, I mean, did you feel immediately a passion for it, or was that something that kind of developed over your years of training and your schooling and, and your exposure to certain people who mentored you? Right. So, um, you know, I think I had a pretty typical adolescence, and I left for college kind of ready to take on the world, I think, but I certainly was not focused on medicine at that point and really didn't have a great sense of what I wanted to do. And you know, when I went to college, I was lucky enough to go to a small liberal arts college in the Northeast um, and was really mentored by some really amazing uh, physicians then. I mean, for me personally, and my mother actually was very insightful about this when I was selecting colleges, um, she really knew that um, going to a smaller place where I would have really close relationships with the faculty was going to be good for me and to help me kind of define what I wanted to do with my future career. And really very early in my freshman year, I met a wonderful woman who was my chemistry professor who kind of, I think, saw that I had a strong work ethic and um, she really mentored me from a very early age, kind of developed my love of science, my love of research, um, and really encouraged me, I think, to kind of think um, you know, big picture and what I wanted to do with my life. And really, I think along with my early years, it kind of helped uh, me crystallize the idea very quickly into college that going to medical school was really what I wanted to do and what really my, my destiny was, if you can say that. Well, what made you choose Yale for, the, uh, for medicine, for the University uh, School of Medicine? Well, Yale is Yale. Um, from, uh, you know, the perspective of a prospective uh, applicant to medical school, um, Yale is one of the pillars of academic, uh, you know, medical training in the country. It was then and it still is now. And I think my experience there um, interviewing was very telling. I mean, um, at the time, you know, certainly today, uh, medical school applicants, it's actually more than 50%, but at the time that I was applying, it wasn't that high. But Yale um, was one of those places in the country that was uh, really encouraging to women physicians and women faculty members at the time. And actually, the woman that interviewed me, I will never forget, she is now the dean of Wellesley College, a woman, woman by the name of Kim Bottomley, um, you know, was impressive. And again, another one of those role models that I remember looking at when I interviewed to say, Boy, she's pretty awesome, and she was very welcoming. And, you know, Yale is Yale, so um, it was an honor to be able to um, go there. They actually had a very interesting curriculum, too, that I liked, which is, um, and they still do, which is um, they have a, uh, for medical students, you're required to do a senior research thesis um, as part of the graduation requirements, and that's something that's uh, different um, compared to other medical schools across the country. Now, after growing up in the Northeast, you then chose to go to the Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago Hospital to complete your residency. Why did you choose to go there? And also, uh, why did you choose internal medicine for residency? So those are two good questions. Um, you know, uh, when I made the decision to do my residency and where I was going to go was really the first time that I had to take another person into consideration, and that was really the time when I was newly engaged and my husband or my fiancé at the time was looking at academic uh, teaching positions. And so really our journey at that point was trying to find um, two positions for two career physicians, and just like residents and medical students face today, that's a little bit more of a complicated process. 
And so I ended up at the University of Chicago, and really, uh, when I had interviewed at the University of Chicago, again, it goes back to finding those people that you connect with. The program director there at the time, a woman by the name of Holly Humphrey, and the the um, chairman of the Department of Medicine, Arthur Rubenstein, were just, you know, were and are amazing uh, mentors, role models. And the program at the University of Chicago was very similar to the internal medicine program at Yale. And so it was a very, it was a very good fit for me. And, and my fiancé at the time got a very good job there. And so that was a, a kind of a mutual decision to go to Chicago. Um, the reason for internal medicine, I mean, if you ask my husband, he would say I was an internal medicine doctor from the day I was born. Um, you know, there's really... You know, nothing that um, I would do differently other than internal medicine. I mean, it suits everything about kind of what I love about medicine. Um, you know, I'm definitely not a surgeon. There were aspects, you know, during medical school when I loved surgery, but um, what medicine brings to the table is the complexity of um, patient care. It's really problem-solving. But the other aspect of it is um, long-term patient relationships, which, you know, I, I I've been practicing here in Cincinnati now for 23 years, and, you know, I have many patients that have been with me for 23 years. Um, you know, I have many patients who remember me pregnant with both of my children, and, you know, having those long-term relationships um, is incredibly meaningful and part of the reason that medicine is so wonderful. And so internal medicine is without question the only specialty that I would ever have done, and that was a definite right decision for me. Well, I... I um... You know, with all the privacy laws and everything, I'm gonna I'm gonna break one code right off the bat. I have a very loyal group of followers since we've been doing the show for eight months. So I'm gonna ask you on the air: uh, Do you have a patient that's more difficult than me? <laughs> well, Jimmy, I allow you to break that uh, privacy right now. Jimmy, that embarrasses me very much, but um, you know, I think you know. In my exam rooms, I have. Uh, <laughs> The little containers that say the ashes of problem patients, and uh, you know, patients comment about that all the time. Um, you know, uh, uh, Jimmy, honestly, no, I don't have anyone that's more difficult than you are. But no, that that of course is not not true. Patients are not difficult. I mean, really, you know, when patients Mandy. are ill or having problems, you know, they bring um, a different set of needs to the table. And I think part of my job and what I hope that I do halfway decent, um, is try to make patients feel comfortable and really kind of not be judgmental and not um, be disparaging if they're having a hard time dealing with their particular illness or their particular concern. And, and you know, you're terrific. You're not difficult, and it's all good. You okay, won't go I, in the jar. I, I, I won't put you in the jar. <laughs> not for, not, at least not yet. Well, I can assure our listeners you do an unbelievable job, and uh, I was honored to have you on the show. I do want to take a moment because there's so many shows over our lifetime that have talked about doctors and some of the most popular shows from ER to God knows how many shows have been created about medicine. Uh, every doctor has one story from the residency they love to share, whether it's funny or they keep it themselves or it helps shape their medical you know, lives and kind of the way they deal with patients even. Do you have one that sticks out uh, maybe that you can share with us? So, you know, I have several. I mean, I can tell you the good stories and the bad stories. I mean, the the most memorable story to me, well, I have two. The, the positive one really is uh, when I was an intern, very early into my internship, I had an elderly woman come into the emergency room, and she was in a diabetic coma with a, something called a hy hyperosmolar syndrome. And 
you know, I love diabetes. The chairman of my department at the University of Chicago was an endocrinologist, and diabetes is a wonderful, classic internal medicine disease, and there's lots to learn and lots to manage, and it's very gratifying because you're able to take care of a problem and fix someone. And this patient came into the emergency room with no history of diabetes. She had a blood sugar of 900. She was very ill. She was admitted to the ICU. We turned her around. She was managed and taken care of. And and, you know, when we sent her home, there was never a patient that was more appreciative, you know, of anything that I had ever done. And it was one of those really gratifying moments where, you know, my husband says this all the time as a surgeon where you fix someone and they're very appreciative. Well, certainly with diabetic coma, you know, the patient goes home and is normal and is happy and is on a little bit of diabetes medication. Well, this patient was so appreciative um, that, you know, I left the University of Chicago. It's more than 25 years ago now, and literally every Christmas since I've left there, she sends me a Christmas card with a long thank you note um, now from Chicago. And, you know, it was one of those very early relationships, which is just, you know, explains the power of um, kind of helping someone and their gratitude and kind of the meaningfulness of that whole long-term relationship. So that's, that's, you know, wonderful, and I appreciate that every year I get the Christmas card from her. Um, you know, the, the flip side of the story is, you know, the first time as an intern that I, that I made a, you know, a medical error and actually, um, you know, almost harmed a patient. Um, and, you know, that story will resonate with me for, you know, the rest of my life, kind of the magnitude of what you're doing when you're taking care of patients and kind of how serious you have to be about it and, you know, how vigilant about kind of being careful because, of course, the the overriding principle of being a physician is, you know, do no harm. And, you know, that first time when I clearly made a medical mistake, um, you know, that's a pretty pretty overwhelming experience. Well, um, no, I can understand that. Let me ask you, what got you to Cincinnati and, you know, what brought you here? And then really what was it that helped you decide that women's health would become your niche in your practice? So the short answer of how I got to Cincinnati is my husband dragged me here. Um, <laughs> um, you know, Cincinnati was, you know, I'm an East Coast girl, so, you know, living in Cincinnati was not necessarily on my radar screen, and I say that, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek now because, sure. you know, I've been in Cincinnati since 1991, and as you know, Cincinnati's my home, and I'm very attached and very devoted to Cincinnati now. But at the time that I moved here in 1991, certainly it was a foreign place, and I was this you know, East Coast trained, New York, uh, Long Island girl coming to the Midwest. And, you know, it was foreign to me. But, um, you know, I came from the University of Chicago. I was really fortunate and thrilled to join the faculty at the University of Cincinnati at that point. I, I was there, as you mentioned, in the introduction for 12 years. And, you know, it was a tremendous experience to be, again, kind of new faculty in an academic medical center. And, you know, when you finish residency, you think you're really pretty smart and you think you know what you're doing, but actually you need a lot more kind of mentoring then as well, and you need a lot more experience kind of doing things on your own. You know, you're kind of protected when you're a resident, um, you know, from, you know, more senior physicians who are kind of watching out for you. But when you're really faculty and you're really on your own and you're really teaching, you know, that's a whole different um, can of worms. And so, you know, the 12 years that I spent at the University of Cincinnati, I was kind of teaching and building a practice in the Division of General Internal Medicine, and that was, you know, a, a fabulous experience for me um, and really helped, you know, form who I am today and kind of, you know, what I've been doing in private practice. But, um, you know, the women's health thing came um, a little bit out of the blue for me. You know, as I mentioned, I loved endocrinology when I was 
a resident. Um, you know, I loved all things internal medicine, but, um, you know, the women's health thing when I started a practice in general medicine kind of happened because female patients started to gravitate towards me as a female internist. And so as part of my care of them, it started to become clear to me that, you know, there was this whole need for more consultation and more understanding of particular aspects of women's health, particularly menopause and um, midlife women's health issues, female sexual dysfunction, kind of osteoporosis uh, management, kind of cardiovascular risk assessment in women, some things that really um, were more focused to women that were kind of getting missed in general internal medicine. So I kind of landed at an organization, um, became part of an organization called the North American Menopause Society, which I'm incredibly devoted to at this point. Um, I became involved with them in the uh, late 1990s or maybe right around 2000, and that's a really fascinating multidisciplinary organization that is um, both obstetrics and gynecology physicians and internal medicine and family physicians and endocrinologists and women cardiologists that are doing, or cardiologists that are doing women's cardiovascular disease. And it's an international organization, but it's relatively small. And the focus is really on um, kind of women's health. And so I was exposed to incredible thought leaders in the field. Um, I've been involved with the organization now for 12 years. And, um, you know, so again, um, it was an area where I could kind of hone my Skills. It was a particular niche within a much broader field of internal medicine. And again, I had really good mentorship. The other thing is there's, you know, an aspect of endocrinology in menopause and midlife women's health. And so, you know, it kind of fit the whole bill. Um, and so from both a personal professional kind of niche for me, it's been very good. And from a patient care niche, it's been very good for me as well. And, you know, it's just kind of gone from there. So is this what also now... Uh has brought you back to the University of Cincinnati and a new role with a new project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I'm thrilled to be back at the university. Um, Interestingly, you know, I'm an internist, and I'm back, as you mentioned in my introduction, in the department of OBGYN. So I'm in obstetrics and gynecology doing midlife women's health in that department, which is a little bit odd, but certainly there's precedent across the country, but, you know, a little bit unusual here in Cincinnati for sure. But Um, You know, it really is the reason that I'm back um, at the university. So between the time I left in 2002 and now that I'm back at the university in 2012, you know, the 10 years, my private practice really was about developing a um, primary care-based practice with a focus in midlife women's health. And I actually hired internal medicine providers who were similarly interested in women's health. All of them have since gotten involved in the North American Menopause Society as well and have participated in the advanced credentialing exam as well. Um, And really kind of through that journey in private practice, really it became very clear to me that having a comprehensive outpatient um, kind of medical home for women's health care was really a great goal and something that was... um, you know, potentially needed or hoped for in Cincinnati. And so over the last several years, I've kind of been talking to, um, you know, various hospital systems here in the city. But really, when when it all came down to it, the opportunity to kind of partner and do this with the University of Cincinnati, it's a tremendous opportunity. I think this um, Women's Health Center and kind of this program that we're developing really should be at an academic medical center. It really fits very well being at an academic medical center because the program that 
I'm working with UC to develop will be very multi-specialty, multidisciplinary, and um, will involve a lot of different departments. And so, you know, being at the university is just an incredible opportunity for me, and I hope for this program. And and one of the other reasons, frankly, I'm back at the university is, again, it goes back to this whole concept of, for me, you know, professional mentorship. And um, the chairman of the Department of OBGYN at the University of Cincinnati is um, a tremendous individual. Um, uh, the chairman's name is uh, Dr. Arthur Evans. And he, again, has been, um, you know, really supportive of this concept and is a huge mentor to me uh, going forward with this project. So it's it's a huge opportunity. I'm thrilled to be you know, back. You know, on all the shows we've done, one of the common threads that runs through almost every one of our uh, guests is mentorship. I mean, uh, I can't think of one person we haven't had on over these eight months that hasn't had a an influencer, a mentor in their life that's really helped propel them where you know we're on their journey. Uh, I mean, uh, most of us don't really know what our journey. Uh, where, where we're going to go and what it is and what our purpose in life is. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking specifically about menopause, hormones, sex, and, and a lot of things during a woman's midlife and also kind of touch on some of, of your personal goals uh, as it kind of takes you globally. So we'll, we may reserve that, but I do uh, agree with you that mentorship has probably been one of the great one of the great forces behind a lot of success that people have uh, had in their life and also one of the great challenges that we bring to kids who are growing up and not really having role models in their life and people that can help them. And I think it's one of the projects that we all need to, to focus on. I do want to ask, as I, as, as I know you, obviously, and we're very close uh, and I trust you with my life, um, it sounds like you work a ton and therefore one of the great uh, questions is, how do you juggle work and life balance? And you've raised kids, you have beautiful kids, uh, John and Sydney, and I do want to give a plug to your wonderful husband, Chip, um, who's a wonderful orthopedic surgeon. Uh, how, do you, how, do, how do kids fit into your journey? How did and how do you juggle raising a family with a busy professional life? And when you started out, there probably weren't a lot of women doing you know, what you were doing. I'm sure when you got to Chicago or when you came back to Cincinnati, you were juggling a lot, and that probably is a little more common today, but wasn't very common when you were starting out. So I think, you know, it depends who you ask about my work-life balance, Jimmy, because I think if you asked my children right this minute, they would tell you I have, you know, no work-life balance at all. It's all work. Um, but, you know, for all... Um, women who are working and raising a family, and I think women and women physicians who are raising a family, you know, this is the kind of chronic battle of kind of juggling work-life balance, and I don't certainly don't think that I have all the answers or the, um, you know, the key to success in this. You know, I often say that the proof is in the pudding. I'm, my kids seem to be doing okay right now, but you know, who knows? I don't know what they're going to be saying 40 years from now about their dysfunctional mother that worked all the time, but um, you know, there's no question that when I was um, in my residency that, you know, I was, when I was finishing, I was really starting to think about having a family. And, you know, I knew from a very young age, actually, before I knew that I wanted to be a doctor, that I wanted to be a mother. I mean, kids were always an incredibly important um, part of my life journey. I knew that it was going to be. And, you know, honestly, I probably, given the opportunity, would have had lots more. 
um, children. But, um, you know, the, the work-life balance thing is something that, you know, I work on on a day-to-day ba- basis. I mean, I certainly um, struggle with finding the right balance, uh, you know, as I'm approaching 50 soon. Um, you know, this year, you know, one of my mottos was work hard, play hard, live thoughtfully. Um, I'm, I'm certainly doing the work hard uh, part. I'm not sure I'm doing the play hard as much as you you know, usually, but I'm certainly very thoughtful and aware of the fact that it's something that I have to, you know, strive for. My kids, um, you know, are certainly, you know, the number one thing that I'm most proud of in my entire life and certainly, you know, the thing that I will be most proud of when I'm gone. I mean, are certainly, you know, more than more than what I'm doing in medicine as important as that is to me. My children are the most important thing. Um, but, you know, the work-life balance is something that, um, you know, I think women struggle with, and, and I hope that part of the way that I've made the journey can be a little bit of a role model for younger physicians who are coming up, because I think one of the key things that someone said to me, actually it was um, Holly Humphrey, who was the uh, program director when I was at the University of Chicago, um, she said something very important to me at the time, which is that, you know, a woman's professional journey is very different than a man's professional journey and that women really don't have the same linear kind of exponential growth or advancement to their professional journey and that women kind of have fits and starts depending on, you know, child needs at home and young children or ill parents. And, you know, I've certainly lived through all of those times when really my career was lower priority, particularly when I had an ill mother or my children were young. But, you know, I think her her point to me at the time was, you know, there's always time in the future. You know, you can come back and reconnect. And that's kind of what I'm doing now, honestly. You know, my children are both pretty much grown. My son has one more year of high school. Um, but this is really the time that I think, you know, this is the next 10 years where really I can now focus um, you know, more on my career, and I'm not so split. But, you know, the work-life balance is tough, Jimmy. Well, I, you know, I don't think you're alone in that, and I know that that's my greatest struggle and not one that I, uh, that I have a long way to go on it. I have that in, in, in my professional life, my personal life, and trying to, I think all of us have trouble finding that balance. Uh, we have a few minutes left just in this segment. Uh, I want to ask, you know, one of the most important topics in the country right now, especially with the impending election this fall and yesterday's Supreme Court decision, is the health care in America. And what do you see as the real problem, and what do you think about what's happening now in health care reform? So, Jimmy, that's, you know, a really big question. And, you know, I certainly, as a practicing physician, don't have the answers to how to write health care reform. What I can tell you, though, is that, I think the system, the way it has been and the way it's going was um, not sustainable, is not sustainable, and that there are huge um, problems or barriers in the the way the system is um, currently running now. Um, You know, is the current Health Care Reform Act, you know, the one that the Supreme Court upheld, is that the solution? Um, I'm not sure it's the solution. There are aspects of it that I really um, support. I do think that, you know, my overriding theme is that we are an affluent country, um, you know, and we should figure out health care. I mean, really all members of our country should have health insurance and the ability to get adequate health care. Now, how that's funded and how we do that, you know, I certainly don't have the answers for, but I do think that, um, you know, we change needs to happen. This is a step in a direction. Is it the right direction? I'm not 100% sure, but um, certainly we need change. Well, you know, as you, as you kind of um, look back uh, 
over your career, you transitioned from academia to patient care and then back to academia. Uh, you've talked a little bit about what motivated you to make those changes. I assume you took great risk in making those changes, and, and not just as a woman, but also as a mother and a wife. Uh, was that a difficult time for you to, uh, or uh, difficult in making those, those choices? So the hardest decision I ever made, really professionally, not personally, but hardest decision I ever made professionally was making the decision in 2002 to leave the university and to start my own practice. Um, that was not part of the journey that I ever saw coming um, and was a decision I struggled with over many, 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 many months and really agonized about it even after I made the decision, really, because the future was so uncertain of what would happen with my career. It, it, you know, at the time that I did it, there were a lot of people who really discouraged me from leaving the university, who really thought I was making a huge mistake, who, you know, it was suggested I was having a midlife crisis or, you know, I mean, all kinds of things were kind of said. You know, lots of people were very skeptical that I would be able to survive. And although I was really uncertain of... Um, the decision when I did it. Once I made the decision, I threw myself wholeheartedly into kind of building the kind of practice that I really believed in and really decided I was going to try to make a go of it. And the journey for the 10 years of being a private practitioner has been unexpectedly wonderful in many ways. I mean, certainly has been um, an experience that I never thought I would have. I mean, if you had asked me as a medical student at Yale if I would ever be in private practice in Cincinnati, Ohio, I would have laughed at you at that point. But the truth is, um, you know, the 10 years that I did this private practice have been incredibly wonderful and have taught me all so many things about myself that I didn't know and have really um, enriched me in ways that I didn't didn't expect. And I think truthfully is part of the reason that I'm so excited and able to be back at the university in a completely different role. Well, um, it's time for us to take a short break. This is Jimmy Gould, my special guest and personal dear friend, Dr. Lisa Larkin. The current life is sponsored by Smart Water and AdSpace Small Networks. Uh, please stay tuned. We'll spend a lot of time talking about uh, menopause uh, in the second half. Uh, we'll be right back. Thank you. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. I'm Jimmy Gould, and I'm here with my very special guest, Dr. Lisa Larkin. Uh, Lisa, one of the main topics we wanted to focus on for this show is hormones, sex, and menopause during a woman's midlife. What exactly is menopause, medically speaking, and how does it affect most women, and what are typical symptoms a woman will experience? So menopause, by definition, is no menstrual bleeding for 12 months. Um, women kind of experience it at varying uh, ages, but the average age across the United States is 51. Symptoms are varied. Um, you know, there are patients who kind of go through, or women who go through menopause without many symptoms, but the symptoms, and you can see them, you know, on many cards, birthday cards, and, uh, you know, caricatures are, you know, hot flashes, night sweats, mood disturbances, uh, fuzziness, sleep disturbances, weight gain, uh, decreased libido, vaginal dryness. Um, you know, women have a lot of symptoms that they don't like when they're transitioning. And do you think that um, most men or husbands or whatever, boyfriends, significant others, call them whatever you want to call them, uh, understand that this is a change that goes on over a period of time that is so very different than what men go through because its, it's time, its length is so much longer? And, and, and do you think they understand it or do you think we need to do a better job of educating men about that? Well, you know, my my simple answer would be I think men need a lot of education on a lot of arenas, but um, <laughs> certainly, you know, this is one that both I think I, I honestly I think you. men and women need education. Um, you know, I think um, men or partners, boyfriends, husbands, you know, whatever, um, you know, always complain or there's a lot of jokes about women having, you know, PMS, you know, oh, she's PMS and moody and irritable and all that kind of stuff. Well, menopause is really, when women are transitioning, kind of exaggerated PMS. And, you know, the truth is women really, many women really don't feel like themselves. I mean, it's a really transitional time, and not all women, but a lot of women feel pretty crummy. I mean, certainly the women that come to see me in the office, um, you know, are pretty miserable as they're going through it, and it's a big change for them. And so, you know, I say that for many women at 50, it's kind of like the perfect storm, which is that they're becoming menopausal. You know, their children are going away to college, so they're becoming empty nesters, which is a big change. You know, and they've been married 25 or 30 years, which, you know, can be challenging in and of itself, as you know. And, you know, it, it can be a really bumpy road for women at 50. And I think, you know, menopause, when women stop having menstrual period, that's a really defining moment for women. You know, fertility is gone. Kind of it's very clear to most women. You know, they, they obviously can't have children anymore, but, you know, they're now old. They feel old. They start to look old. They don't feel like themselves. And, you know, it's a, it's a bumpy road. And I think understanding or, you know, men having more... Um, insight into the fact that this is really based in 
physiologic changes. I mean, this is really related to big-time hormonal changes that women experience relatively abruptly over a short period of time. Um, you know, that there, there could be good, you know, in a, in a, in a connected couple, there should be a lot of conversation about this during the period of time, because I think men could be more supportive of this, and women need some understanding during this period of time. So, you know, it, there's obviously a lot of conflicting information out there about hormone therapy, the management of Paul's. What's your take on that? Okay, Jimmy, that's the million-dollar question, and let me tell you, there's you know, been more published in the last 10 years. And, you know, as I said, I've been really involved in the North American Menopause Society for all these years. And, you know, we spend an annual meeting and four days once a year talking about the current data. So, you know, this is not a simple answer. So it's hard to, you know, do in sound bites, which the news media tries to do. But the the gist really is that, um, you know, where we are with hormones has kind of come full circle. Um, in in years, you know, in the in the 1980s and 1990s, the belief really was that women should take hormones after menopause kind of indefinitely. And the reason for that was uh, there was the understanding from some observational studies that women who took hormones lived longer. They had less heart disease. The women who continued to take hormones would have less heart disease, so they would live longer. So when I was newly practicing, so this is in the late 80s and 90s, all of my patients postmenopausally were taking hormone therapy. I had my 70-year-olds and my 60-year-olds and my diabetics all taking hormones. Um, it really wasn't until, you know, the whole thing fell apart in 2002 when the Women's Health Initiative data was published where really suddenly it became clear that maybe what we thought was so good with hormones, everyone taking hormones long-term, really had much different risks associated with it, and there were things that were wrong. And, you know, at, at that point in time, the news media came out with, you know, it increases stroke, it increases breast cancer, hormones increase uh, uh, cardiovascular disease. And so women abruptly stopped taking their hormones in 2002. Doctors stopped prescribing them. And women who were becoming menopausal in 2002 were left thinking, oh, my gosh, I feel terrible, and really were left with very little um, help to be able to take hormones to manage their menopause. And, and what's happened between 2002 and 2012 is that, you know, we've spent the last 10 years kind of really looking at the data in very different ways. And the pendulum from going from completely positive to completely negative on hormones is now really somewhere in the middle. And I think we're really getting to the place of understanding which patients can and should take hormones safely and how we should use hormones um, to minimize risk and optimize benefits. Benefit. And what the data really shows now is that younger women, right around the time of menopause, so these are 50-year-old healthy women who are having bad symptoms of menopause, the hot flashes and the night sweats and the insomnia, um, really can benefit from hormone therapy when used for short periods of time with very, very minimal risk and lots of benefit. Where the risk really becomes um, clear is in older women. So I think what we know very clearly now is that 70-year-old women and 75-year-old women who are long beyond menopause, who have increased heart disease risk and stroke risk, that those women really should not be taking hormones, that really for them the risk of the hormones far outweighs the benefits. And so certainly I will tell you, you know, I have a large, um, as you've said, kind of menopause practice, 
I do a lot of midlife women's health. And, you know, this is um, a controversy that rages in the lay public press. You know, you have lots of people who are out there saying all hormones are bad still and lots of kind of people who are saying hormones are good and you can take hormones safely. Really, the way that I approach it is, you know, it's an individual um, assessment of each patient. And really what we're looking at is the severity of their symptoms, you know, what really their treatment goals are, but you have to take into consideration both their personal medical history and their family history to really make sure, you know, that hormones are appropriate and safe for that individual. So, so if a woman has some symptoms, should she immediately come and see you or, or should, should she wait till they're more severe? Um, you know, what are some of those kind of suggestions? Also, do you have a website that you can offer up so that people who have questions about this can contact you? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, the website is just my name, www.lisalarkinmd.com, and um, certainly patients can uh, or people can communicate uh, with me through the website. Um, you know, in terms of symptoms, I mean, this is, this is an interesting uh, thing that's been debated kind of in the media as well, which is, you know, menopause is a natural condition, right? Women are supposed to go through menopause at 50. You know, the ovaries kind of stop working, fertility, you know, goes away. And, you know, women enter the postmenopausal uh, period of life, and it's, it's a natural phenomenon. So, you know, it's really been put out there is why are we trying to make this a medical condition? Why are we really trying to treat women for menopause when it's really something that's supposed to happen? Well, the issue is when you're a practicing physician, you see that women are really suffering, many women, not all women. And again, there are women out there that go through menopause and they, they don't know what all the fuss is about. But the women that certainly come to see me in practice, these are women who are really having trouble, who are miserable during, you know, the whole transition to menopause. And so the reason that, you know, it's a condition is because women are miserable. And certainly there's really good treatment available. And so it's not that there's a... Um, uh, you know, a specific list of symptoms that women should pay attention to. I mean, it's really if women are having trouble during the menopause transition, they should see their physician because, you know, there there are things available. What many women are doing, I will tell you, is, is you know, they're afraid to go see their doctor because they've heard negative things about hormones. They don't think they want to take hormones, and so they end up actually going to the health food store, and they end up talking with people at the health food store, and they end up trying supplements which really aren't effective. Um, and, you know, they really suffer. And so my, my whole um, push, and I do a lot of lecturing in the community um, to raise awareness about this, is that if you're, if you're not doing well and you're transitioning, go see your doctor because there really are safe and effective methods um, and things that we have available to help you during the transition. It does seem that more work is being done by patients outside their interaction with their physician, like in regard to being better informed about how to create more wellness in their lives, uh, is that an outgrowth of more expensive health care or better education or something else? And how do you feel and what do you feel about this change? You know, because it would seem to me, especially on this subject, that, that it would help because there's so many factors that have to be taken into consideration when you're looking at this. One, I mean, one of the questions that goes with this is, is the question of, of uh, you know, early stage menopause and whether or not, you know, later stage uh, you're more at risk for cancer or vice versa. I mean, a lot of these questions, you know, you can, you can really find information, you know, on various websites or, you know, at this Menopause Society or at your website so that people can really try to answer some of those concerns because I do think 
women are hesitant. First of all, our society, you know, just sells everything young. And, and I think there is a, a misnomer because if you're connected to your partner, you know, uh, I happen to, to feel strongly that, that you know, the, the, the more information, the better, because people can work together as they're going through symptoms. I mean, men go through things, too. You know, as they age, they age differently. They may age in an easier way, but they still go through a lot of stuff. I mean, there's a whole thing with erectile dysfunction today. That doesn't mean that they're not interested in sex. It just might mean that it's a physiological thing. And I just think that there's a lot of confusing stuff going on, and we're so much more prone to more information today with the Internet. And can you kind of speak to that in, in, in a more general way about how we can better interact with our doctors and, and how, we, how physicians can better uh, interact with their patients? Well, there's a lot there, Jimmy, so I'll try to, I'll try to put it together. But first of all, I think um, technology has been uh, tremendously positive overall. I mean, there's parts of it that I think negatively affect um, healthcare sometimes. But overall, I think the availability of medical information on the Internet for both patients and honestly physicians as well is hugely positive. Um, I mean, I think, I think the benefit to patients, um, you know, patients research their own symptoms all the time. Patients will look up medications, will look up conditions. I have very um, intelligent patients who will come in with whole lists of questions for me, which really can streamline and make patient visits very, very productive. So I'm not spending a lot of time on the visit educating the patient about their condition. The patient will come in right. really with a lot of knowledge. And in the arena of menopause, frankly, I 100% agree with you that there's really tremendous information and resources on the website um, for patients if they're out there looking. And this is a subject that's also so well covered in the lay press, be it in by Oprah or Dr. Oz or Dr. Phil. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there and a lot of books being published. So patients really can get um, information if they're looking for it. One of the pitfalls, though, that I have, particularly in the arena of menopause, is that there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. And so one of the things that I try to do on my website and when I'm talking to patients to encourage them to do is to really look at more reliable um, uh, web sources. And one of the things that I encourage is really looking at the organizational website. So I direct patients all the time to the North American Menopause Society website. It's a tremendous website, both for clinicians looking for information, but also for patients. Um, so there's a whole consumer side. There's a lot of consumer resources. Um, there's a tremendous body of information there. Um, but, you know, in addition, you can go to the American Heart Association. You can go to the American Cancer Society. You know, there's, there's uh, American College of Physicians. There's really reputable organizations that have very good consumer websites that I think are very appropriate. Where things start to fall apart is some of these other non-organizationally supported websites where you can't really be sure the information that you're getting. And particularly in the field of menopause, in my opinion, and again, my opinion only, there's some stuff out there that you know, really gives patients a lot of misinformation. So sometimes on the office visit, patients will come in to see me about it and they will have misinformation that I kind of have to dispel and redirect them. But, you know, overall, I think the take is technology has been um, great for both patients and providers in terms of availability of really the science behind the decisions we're making. Well, you know, we, this show goes into 187 countries and is is promoted throughout the entire United States. Uh, 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 and we had a lot of emails, and one of the emails, I would say the majority of the emails, 
was really they wanted me to ask you a bunch of questions about sex and menopause uh, because there is, I think, a lot of misinformation about that. And I think, so I'll just say, let's talk for a few minutes about that. Uh, uh, the stereotype is that women are simply less interested in sex as they get older, and does it have to be that way? And how do you continue to have a healthy amount of sex if you're experiencing a decrease in your sex drive? So that was one of the questions that came up in an email, so I thought I'd throw that one to you. So, you know, sex is an issue that I talk about with my midlife patients all the time. And, you know, there is a change. I mean, at menopause, women go through a huge hormonal change very abruptly. I mean, I often say to patients, you know, men have it easier. I always think that men have it easier through life. Um, but, you know, one of the specific things is that men age very differently than women age. And men hormonally, you know, and physiologically age kind of linearly. So in men, certainly we know over time that testosterone levels gradually decline, but there isn't the same thing that happens in women, which is women go from, you know, having menstrual periods and having relatively high levels of hormones to becoming postmenopausal where their hormonal state is completely and relatively abruptly night and day different. I mean, there are, there are very specific times in a woman's life when, they, when she has big hormonal swings. Um, you know, one of the most um, important times is right after delivery of a baby. So woman, women, a woman goes from one level of hormones to a very big change in hormones right after the birth of a baby. And, you know, there's some clear hormonal basis for a lot of, you know, what you hear about postpartum depression and mood disturbances after um, the birth of a child in susceptible women. Um, you know, at menopause, we see the same thing, which is, you know, there's a, a relatively abrupt period of time where women go from one hormonal state to another hormonal state um, related to a real change in hormonal levels. And it's not just estrogen that changes at menopause, but really we call them androgens or testosterone levels often, you know, change at menopause too. So in the majority of women, they decline. And so women do come in talking to me, and this is one of the aspects of why menopause is challenging. You know, um, at 48, they feel one way, and at 51, they feel a completely different way. And women will come in saying to me, you know, I just have no libido. I'm just not interested anymore. And my, you know, husband still has really good libido and it's really an issue. And, you know, this is back to your point, Jimmy, about communication and about making, you know, partners or spouses or boyfriends or whatever aware of the fact that there is really a, a physiologic change. Um, now, the, the issue is, is that in some couples, you know, when women's interest in sex or thoughts about sex kind of declines after menopause, it doesn't have to be an issue. I mean, I certainly have many married couples where the man's interest in sex is declining for one reason or another as well, and really there's no angst. Um, you know, the, the frequency of their intimate relationship may go down somewhat, but it's not not existent. Um, and, you know, it's not that um, a postmenopausal woman can't have a normal sexual response. It's really a lot of times the two aspects of it that happen after menopause is that she's less interested, so it takes a little more to get her interested, but the response is really normal. The, the one other part of it that, that does change at menopause is that women have much more difficulty with vaginal lubrication and vaginal dryness, and that's something that I fix in women all the time. Um, and women often think that there's nothing that they can do for that, but there's lots of things that they can do for that. Um, and so fixing the, the vaginal dryness, kind of validating the fact that it's normal, that, you know, their interest is really not quite as high as it used to be, but, you know, if, if you can encourage them to get into the situation that their sexual response will be normal. Um, and, you know, a, awareness. 
Um, I, I wish I could tell you that there was, you know, a magic anti-aging pill for all of us, for you, me, and for everyone out there. But, um, you know, the fact is that, you know, we're all aging and there really is physiologic changes that happen at menopause that does influence um, interest in sex and libido for women and men. It just doesn't happen as abrupt, abruptly for men. Well, I, I mean, first of all, you know, this, this show is dedicated to uh, to the journey of life, and one of the things that we're going to dedicate to is every month talk about different health issues and how to bring men and women closer together so that there is a better form of communication. And so hopefully you'll grace us with your presence again because uh, you've enlightened us already and you're, you're, you have a way of being able to explain this so that I think you'll the education process will improve people's understanding of the other sex, which certainly we we, we all need that work uh, on a daily basis. Let me, let me ask you, because uh, we only have a few minutes left, uh, what was your wow moment professionally and personally in your life, and who were your greatest influencers that really helped you develop into the kind of person you are today? So, Jimmy, if you mean by wow moments, you know, it's if you're talking, you know, those life-altering moments, um, you know, those for me clearly would be the death of both of my parents who, unfortunately, uh, my father died at 51, my mother died at 57. And, you know, the, the loss of both of them early had profound effects on me um, at the time of their death. Um, but both of them now, my father's been um, deceased about 25 years, my mother I think it's 18 now, um, you know, when you look back on their deaths and kind of how that influenced um, my life, I think they both, both of them in their own way, had profound impacts on me. My, my father's death was uh, very sudden and very unexpected, and, uh, you know, I, I have said many times that the moment he died, my, my world changed forever, my life changed forever. But um, from a personal standpoint, um, now looking back, that was... Um, really one of those wow moments in the sense that, um, you know, that has um, given me the sense that life is fragile, that unexpected things happen, that, um, you know, you can't really know what the future holds for any of us or anyone or certainly my sense. It's made me more thoughtful about kind of the journey and about um, kind of how I live each day. You know, I don't, I don't do it well every day, but as I said, you know, my motto is work hard, play hard, live thoughtfully. Per- certainly as I'm getting close to 50, you know, I'm trying to do that more. And, you know, I think that that's had a profound, profound effect on kind of the way that I live my life and the way that I view the world. My mother's death was completely different. She was 57. She had a protracted illness. And, um, you know, I was unfortunately the one that diagnosed her with her late-stage cancer. And she lived with me for uh, the months of her treatment and then went home, and and my sister cared for her at, at home. But, you know, my role, I was a new physician at that point, and, you know, my role with her was really... Um, as a physician, and I was a new physician as a, as a, you know, relatively recently out of residency, and, you know, I didn't have the same perspective about the power of um, patients needing to have hope. Um, and one of the things that I think I have taken away in all of the years that I've cared for patients since then is that, you know, providing information to a patient, I need to be truthful and I need to be honest about their disease and about what the reality of their disease is for their life going forward, but I need to do it in a way without taking hope. I think um, I was a little bit too direct and blunt with my mother at times, and, and I've really kind of lived to 
wish that maybe I had handled things differently, and it certainly has influenced me in terms of how I take care of patients now. Well, uh, first of all, uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Will you come back? I will come back. Thank you if you'll have me. Um, I will have you. Uh, This has been wonderful for you to share your journey with us. Our time's up, and I'd like to thank Dr. Lisa Larkin for sharing her journey with us. We're very appreciative that she was able to join us today to share her vast knowledge with our listeners and help them navigate through difficult times in their lives. I'd like to thank our listeners for turning into a current life on the Voice of America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. Please join us next Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, for our next episode. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, and success. And to you, my friend, Lisa Larkin, much love, much thank you, and please, please continue your work because you're making our world a better place. And the University of Cincinnati and all of your 5,000 patients are very fortunate to have you in their lives. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info.